I really was in awe of all that Jeff was able to include in that cornhole announcement. I mean, we had bushels of peas and, and Charles Barkley and, and yeah, he says it's a gift. It is. I tell you, man, we're all just in awe of that gift. Well, as, as Jeff mentioned, we are going to talk about biblical identity. And uh, Jeff and I had had some conversations. Uh, we try to pay attention. We miss things for sure. But as we're looking around at our culture, there is a lot of confusion. Maybe that's an understatement. And then coupled with that, the church honestly overall seems in that topic biblically illiterate and... Um, a little bit insecure, like we're looking at our culture and they're pressing in hard and we're just not quite sure what to say or how to respond or, or where to land. And uh, as far as the Bible is concerned, oftentimes we look to the Bible just purely for inspiration, just to kind of get us through a tough time or uh, in a big moment of life, rather than looking at it the way Paul described, and that is for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I, that's what the word is for. It's to help us think about something like identity from God's perspective, not from our own and not just reacting uh, given our story or our experience. Ultimately, the big problem is when we don't get this right, there is missional erosion. The church does not have the redemptive influence that God intends for it to have. So as we talked about it, we just thought, you know what? Honestly, two weeks feels like nothing. <laughs> But we're going to give it two weeks, and we're going to do a biblical survey of this idea of identity. Um, I want to mention two incredible resources that we have and are using. Uh, we would recommend both of them. Uh, they are not a light lunch. They will take you time, and they will cause you to think. But that's a good thing. That's a good thing for a Christian to do. So first is known by God. A Biblical Theology of Personal Identity by Brian Rossner. Great, great resource. And then an oldie but a goodie. Man, Search for Significance. If you have not read that, that would be a great place to start. Such a good work by Robert McGee. So um, let's, let's dive in here. Um, the question around biblical identity is the idea of who am I, right? And that's never been more challenging to answer, perhaps, than it is today. Part of what makes that difficult is it seems like there's this endless list of attributes that uh, we might have to look at and think through in order to answer the question. And, and there's no real agreement on what that list ought to be. It's like that. this group has one list and that group has another. And it's like, well, how do you sort, sort all of that out and come to a place where you can nail down the essence of what identity is and what it's not? Think about all the ways we use the term identity. I just wrote down a few. We've got identity politics. We've got identity formation. Our identity can be hidden, mistaken, or assumed. Some of us have 
or are or will have an identity crisis at some point along the way. There's personal identity, there's individual identity, and those are different things. And then there's social, sexual, gender, and cultural identity that we probably ought to think about according to our culture. It's a lot there. Uh, Brian Rossner in his books, in his book uh, Known by God, says all of this leads to identity angst. I wonder how many of you are feeling that this morning when you think about who you are or who you ought to be or who God says you are or who your neighbor thinks you are. Do you feel some angst around that? That's part of why we're doing this series. So nevertheless, uh, we're going to ask the question, what makes you, you? And right now, you may feel like you're not sure quite how to even tackle that question. I hope by the end of the morning, you'll be on your way. And then, uh, of course, next week, Jeff will take us even further. But what would you put on your list if I just... If you and I sat down over coffee and I said, what makes you, you, what would you put on your list? What categories seem important to you? Are any of them optional? Are there categories that should apply to everyone? Or do we just get to pick and choose? What makes all or part of someone's professed identity true? Is identity in the eye of the beholder? Do you just get to make it up for yourself? The quest for identity is supposedly a pursuit of truth about your person or yourself. But often that pursuit ends up being a subjective process. In other words, your identity is your truth about you. And then what's anybody else supposed to say? This is my truth. And you have your truth. And even if they contradict one another, it's okay. That's a postmodern idea that suggests that identity, and this is so important, is constructed, not determined. It's based upon personal preference over and against objective reality. I like to think of it as building your brand. That's how our world approaches this subject of identity. J.P. Moreland speaks of this. Um, He's a professor and theologian, philosopher. He said this, The proliferation of identity talk represents the rejection of essentialism with its replacement, a form of postmodern constructivism, according to which, and here it is, I can construct any identity for myself I want and form groups of others with the same constructed identity. Have you seen that? This group ascendancy keeps one from facing who they really are, essentially. And instead, hiding from reality by the soothing comfort that comes from group reinforcement of their constructed world. It makes me wonder, is there such a thing as an irreducible self? 
an objective thing that's true of you and me no matter what we think, no matter what we believe. It's just what is true about us and our identity. Is there such a thing? Biblically, we would say, yes, there is. And that identity, from God's perspective, that defines your orientation to everything around you. Your roles, your responsibilities, your relationships, that core identity, that defines how you orient in the face of all of that. I want to sum up where we're going these two weeks with a statement, um, and, and then we'll hopefully deliver on this. Who you are, that is your identity, this is in your notes, informs why you exist, that's your purpose, and why you matter, that's meaning. Then it dictates how you navigate life, that's direction. So if, if we can grasp and understand what God says about our identity, then we get purpose, meaning, and direction by God's grace. That'll be a great gift. I wish I had had that when I was a kid. Um, I thought about my middle school years, which were just the worst. It was like a black hole. Um, came from a broken home, and I was already years into that experience. I was socially awkward. I just didn't really fit in. I certainly wasn't popular. Some might have called me a nerd. I played the viola. Not a lot of guys did that back then. <laughs> I sang soprano. Me and the girls. And I was a gymnast. Now, if you just watch the Olympics, I, you know, I tend to hear awe about the world of gymnastics. But you got to think about my middle school classmates. What do you think they thought of a boy doing gymnastics? It was an identity freefall. I truly just didn't know what was going on. Or how to get through it. And fortunately there was this sweet lady. Mrs. Weathers. She was the guidance counselor for our school. And she would let me sit in her office. And somehow in that place. I felt okay. Can't explain it. I don't even remember what she said to me. <laughs> but that just was a place where it was just okay to be me. And she thought that was really something. I think if we get God's perspective of our identity, that's where we land. In a place of security. In a place of stability. And honestly, in a place of vision. Where you can see your life mattering for all of eternity. So let's look at the essence of identity. This is a biblical survey. If you've ever... Uh, done a, a Bible drill or a sword drill, uh, if anybody remembers those. <laughs> that's kind of what this is like. We're going to look at a lot of Scripture quickly, but hopefully this is stuff that you can go back to again and again. Um, the answer to the question, who am I, 
certainly must include something about our origins. And I'm not talking about what state you were born in and who your parents were and all that thing. We're going way, way before that. Where did I come from? How did I get here? Why am I here? Am I a cosmic accident? How do I explain the fact that I have emotions and reason and intellect and relational capacity? Where did that come from? Am I a chemistry experiment or something more? We learned something about this from David's understanding of his origins in Psalm 139. Listen to what he says. For you, speaking to the Lord, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. The first building block of your identity and mine from God's perspective is that you are created. Don't miss that. You are not the creator. You are vulnerable. You are needy. You are dependent. And you are accountable. And notice the intentionality and the attention to detail that your creator had as he was making you, forming you, knitting you together, intricately weaving all of the details of your body and soul. And he knew you before you ever took a breath before your heart ever beat a single time. He knew you. So you were created. That should point us back to the creation story in Genesis 1. And here's what we're told about the creation of humanity. God said, let us make man in our image after our Likeness, then verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So you are created, and in addition to that, very important, you were created in the image or likeness of God. Paul Tripp says, God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. We're not God. We're honestly a poor reflection. But there is something about you and I as human beings made in the image of God that gives the world, all of creation, a glimpse of who and what God is like. That's a precious thing. Then 
Moses goes on to describe that that image comes in two genders, male and female. Now, given the profound attention to detail that we saw in Psalm 139 in David's words, and the revelatory intentionality, think about that. God is trying to reveal himself, and he is giving great attention to detail in how he makes what he makes. And he chooses, in his wisdom and power as creator, to not just make one gender, but to make two. And these two are certainly distinct, but they correspond to one another, and they are complementary to one another. Now, is God just showing off? Is that a fluke? Did he just think, well, you know, I mean, (laughs) that's kind of cool? Or did he have immense purpose in making male and female? Think about the covenantal oneness that began with Adam and Eve and is the reality between every husband and wife. It displays Trinity-esque oneness, community. It involves a man and a woman as co-creators in God's overall plan. And it reveals the wonder of God's masculine and feminine attributes. I don't claim to understand that, but somehow both are true of our God. He chose to put that on display for us to see. Why did he do that? Certainly to reveal himself. And he did all of that according to his design, not our preferences. This model that I'm talking about, where there are two genders, male and female, has been called the binary model of gender, thus prompting non-binary categories to be uh, established. And the idea is that if you don't like the gender that you were, quote, assigned at birth, then you can find another Now, I just never heard of the concept of being assigned a gender. I just always thought that the doctor or the nurse took a look and said, you're one or the other. Now, I I, I know there was a little bit of a a laugh. I'm not trying to make light of this. There is a very real thing called gender dysphoria. And... That is where there is genuine distress in a person's heart and life about their gender. They genuinely feel like they're in the wrong body. And so as as a church, as God's people who understand the beauty of creation, we ought to feel great compassion, sensitivity, grace, and mercy to those who feel that distress. Having said that, gender dysphoria and gender nonconformity do not constitute a need for new categories. What we need to do is live with the categories that God created and help one another conform to those by His grace 
And I know that's a complicated pathway. But departing from God's design is never the answer. We do not flourish when we go our own way. History has shown us that again and again. Well, Genesis 1, of course, is followed by Genesis 3. We have the fall, the rebellion of humanity. And as a result, all of creation, particularly humanity, came under the curse of sin and death. And so what that does to this idea of being created in God's image, male and female, that image is in someone's words somewhere, I'm not sure who coined this, but defaced, but not erased. So that image is there, it exists, it's just distorted in a way different than it would have been prior to the fall, prior to humanity's um, departure. So in the slide there that you can see, I've got the image of God, and now we're brought into a fork in the road. All of us start in the red. Some of us make our way over to the green, and that will make sense as we make our way through the rest of this. In 1 Corinthians, we learn about two additional categories that relate to human identity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22, For as by a man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man has also has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So our two new categories of identity after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ are you are either in Adam or you are in Christ. That is your identity. It's not what you look like. It's not what your preferences are. It's not where you came from. It's not who you know in the sense of like humanity. It's your spiritual condition. And everybody, every single person on earth is in one of those two boxes. You are either related to, spiritually speaking, Adam. And we're going to talk about what that means. Or you are related to, connected to Christ. You are in him. That's one of Paul's favorite descriptions of a believer. Now, Romans 5.17 says, If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ. So we can say that in those two categories, you are in Adam or in Christ. If you are in Adam, you are spiritually dead. If you are in Christ, you have been made alive. That is your identity. You don't get to choose it in the sense you don't get to make it up like one day I'm dead and one day I'm alive and I kind of like this and I don't like that. It's either true or not. It is irreducible. Now, Paul describes the shift from being in Adam to being in Christ as an act of deliverance. That's the gospel. It's the story of salvation. 
he gives thanks in Colossians 1 to the Father, who he says, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." So all of us, here's a fuller picture of these two categories. If you're in Adam, you're in the domain of darkness. If you're in Christ, you're in the kingdom. There's a kingdom, and the beloved son is over that. All of us start in the domain of darkness as a result of our identification with Adam. All of humanity begins that way. But those who seek forgiveness from Jesus Christ are transferred, delivered into the kingdom of the beloved Son by grace through faith. Now there are enormous personal implications for, that, that go with that transfer. That's what Jeff is going to talk about next week. Where we're starting today is the corporate implications of being in Christ, being in that group of people. Uh, I love what Alistair Begg says about this corporate idea. It's a caution. He says, one of the great dangers of pressing upon people the individualistic nature of saving faith, which is certainly true, but can be exaggerated. The danger is that they then mistakenly apply that same individualism to every other part of their Christian experience. So we begin to think, it's just me and Jesus. And I can do whatever I want to do, or not do what I don't want to do, and that's just fine. Now, just think about that. Does God say that's fine? If, if your identity, if your core identity is part of being in a community of faith, then do you think God is just going, hey, do whatever you want? You don't need to think about anybody else. Does that sound biblical to you? Not at all. So what we're going to see here is that God puts a, a very high biblical priority on the collective, the community facet of our salvation. It's interesting, you don't necessarily see this in the English, but if you go through the New Testament letters, Paul's, and uh, you see where he's speaking of salvation and life and all that kind of stuff, and he uses, uses uh, the word you, we tend to read that in a singular form all the time. Like, this just relates to me. Most of the time, if you could see it in the Greek, it's plural. He's talking to you. Certainly applies to you individually, but that's not who he's talking to. He's talking to all of you. That's usually the context for much of his instructions. So with that in mind, let's look at Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, to get an idea of our kingdom identity. Paul writes, so then... Having been brought to life and transferred into the kingdom of the beloved Son, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, 
But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So there are all of these um, corporate realities that are related to your salvation. I'm going to hit five of them. First of all, you are a fellow citizen with the saints. By the way, that word saints, that's not some elite category of Christian. That If you're a Christ follower, if you've entrusted your life to Christ, you are a saint. Period, biblically speaking. And if you are in this kingdom of the beloved son, then you're a citizen of heaven with all of the saints. Now, what does that mean? That means that elsewhere, 2 Peter 1.3, you've been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's the blessing side. The responsibility side is you've been made an ambassador. You have a job. You've been made a minister of reconciliation with the message of reconciliation. Paul writes that in 2 Corinthians 5. That means that you're called to represent this kingdom in all of the world because of how blessed you have been by God. Secondly, Paul says we're members of God's household. That's a picture of a family. You have been brought into God's family. Once again, there are certainly individual significant things about that. Jeff's going to hit that next week. But just think about a family. We're entitled as family members to an eternal inheritance with Christ. At the same time, we're called to treat one another, and this is in a few different places, with brotherly or sisterly affection. And Paul assumed that everybody knew what that meant. It's just that idea. When you and I look at each other eye to eye and we go, we're family. It doesn't matter if I know you or if you know me. We know about each other if we have entrusted our lives to Christ. We're in the kingdom of the beloved son. We're family, and we know how family are supposed to treat each other. Paul's assuming that. We're called a holy temple in the Lord and a dwelling place for God. Now think about what happens in a temple. Worship. Who's getting worshiped? The God that inhabits that temple. So that's... That's why this collective is put together. It's not just so that you and I can have our individual needs met. We are, first and foremost, worshipers. That is supposed to be the orientation of every facet of our life. So we're put together to bring glory to him. Here's how Peter described it in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is true of everybody, not just some special little group within. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim. Here's why. That you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of that domain of darkness, remember? And into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it is God's delight to dwell with you. You, in the plural. Lastly, Romans 12, 4 through 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. That means we cannot dismiss or neglect one another. It would be like taking an arm off. That's what that imagery communicates to us, is we are like a physical body. We need every part. Not every part does the same thing, but we need them all. And our role, our responsibility is to play our part and to celebrate everyone else who is doing the same. Now, if you see on the other side, there are corresponding attributes for those who are in Adam that contrast those who are in Christ. It's not in these passages, but it's elsewhere throughout our Bible. Those who are in Adam are in the domain of darkness. They are exiled, right, outside of the kingdom. They are estranged. They're not a member of a family. They're alone. They are desolate. Think about a temple as this life-giving place, and they're more like living in a wilderness. And then lastly, the body has this cohesion, but in Adam, they are detached without any connection to what will give them life. Our differentiation from one another is by design. And in that, we learn humility and we learn a sacrificial service. So let me wrap up this way. Who are you? Biblically speaking, you are made in the image of God. You are created male or female. You are united to Christ by grace through faith. You are endowed with all of the blessings and responsibilities of inclusion in the kingdom of God. And all of that has been revealed in the scriptures. It's not a matter of anyone's opinion or interpretation. In light of all of that, and this is the title of our series... We want you to take away this idea. If all of that is true of you, if that's who you really are, then as Paul says, you are not your own. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. You are not your own. Why? Because you've been bought with a price. So, 
You don't need to just figure it out for yourself. You just simply need to look to the creator, the designer, and follow his lead. So as a so what, I I guess I want to ask you, in light of what we've talked about this morning related to your identity, what does it look like for you to follow God's lead? In terms of what he wants to do with you, with your life, and with this community of faith. Take a moment and prayerfully ask for his guidance.